Welcome back to Affiliated. Today we're gonna to be covering scale secrets with ClickBank's top business development managers, Kyle Meredith. Hello, Kyle. Hey, hey. And me, Thomas McMahon. Hey, hey, everybody. Um, I was curious. I was trying to quickly, mathematically do this in my head, which is always dangerous for me. How many hundreds of millions of dollars do you think we've brought onto ClickBank as a team? Like maybe not as a team. You plus me plus the team. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I would say north of north of half a billion. I would say. Yes, it's definitely. I've done that alone. So. Nah. Uh, okay, <laughs> Thomas. <laughs> it's been it's been not a brag, it's but... been a significant <laughs> amount, a not insignificant amount. Yes, it's been a lot. Yeah, yeah. I say that to set the stage because we're talking scale, right? What is scale? How to get to scale? What stops scale? I kind of just want to have that conversation with you here today. I kind of just go through that for people listening, right? Because we have a lot of people that are platinums, diamonds that do listen to this. We have a lot of people aspiring to be that. And all of them are stuck in some capacity in whatever realm of scale they're in. So I'll just kick it off. What is scale? I uh, learned from the best myself. So I'm going to go ahead and steal a line from you. Oh, I, I'm I think, the best. Okay. I like it. Yeah. I think scale is about getting to the point where, um, you are having so many sales per day that it makes you uncomfortable, right? You have achieved a new level of success in your business that you haven't been at before. And that kind of makes you feel a little bit about uneasy about the processes you have in place. Can those processes still support scale? Can they support an even higher level of scale? Yeah. And that's like, uh, I think Jason Myers spoke to this at the last time we we're in Unico for platinum summit, uh, which we're going back this year, but this was, two or three years ago. Well, maybe more because COVID had broke my brain with time. Yeah, so same. <laughs> probably more than that. <laughs> now I think about it, but he, he said like, you know, it's a, uh, it's when the solution to a problem is now the problem, right? Like you've almost scaled past the comfort level, the whatever was working is no longer, is now no longer working. Um, and I, like, I, I was like, when that, he said that, that really clicked for me, right? I was like, oh yeah. Cause what you can almost think about even in individual teams, you go through that, right? Let alone a company. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, okay, yeah, I can remember back when we, when uh, Kayla and I were trying this new like Kanban board for like operational stuff. We're like, this is going to be great. And it worked for like a week. <laughs> and then we quickly realized that it wasn't going to work at scale across the whole team. We had to shut it all down. It was like three months of wasted work. How about our, our version one of the launch checklist, which was a Google Doc, yeah. which provided links to the knowledge base yeah. article. Like, but compiled, right? Didn't That couldn't scale, wasn't serviceable to different personality exactly. types and stuff so, like that. Lots of ways you can think about that in your business or as a person who you know, was listening to this. Um, but it's like almost like, so, okay. So it's like when you're kind of getting past that, point of comfortability, but how do you even get to that point? Maybe you've got no sales coming in. Like where is, what are the levers to pull when you're trying to crack the code, if that makes sense? Because to me, the scale seems like you've cracked something and some things are working, sales are coming in, revenue's coming in, and now you're trying to play keep up a little bit. But how do you start even playing keep up? How do you get ahead of it? Yeah, it, and it's, yeah. it's kind of tapping into the economies of scale a little bit, right? What are the factors you need to have playing all at the same time in order to achieve a lot more sales in your business. And from a high level standpoint on ClickBank, we've done well, you and you and other Kyle, 
uh, have done a lot of podcasts on this too. So if you, if you want some of those, I'm sure we can put some of those in the show notes that dive into this deeper. But realistically, we're talking about starting at margins, right? Which is almost defense for you, making sure that you have really good margins to be able to play with, and then focusing on conversion rate and average order value. And together, finding the right blend of average order value, what you can afford to pay, uh, and then your average order value, tapping into that, building on that a little bit, and then how well your offer converts, and finding the right blend of those together. Because it isn't, it is, there is no perfect formula, right? And an offer, if you compare yourself to a competitor, you could under-convert them. Yes. You're going to have to pay them more. And that can be okay, because as long as the affiliate net's more at the end of the day promoting your offer, you can win. You don't have to beat them on every one of the metrics. Yeah, because it's, it's like, what is that conversion rate optimization you need to be doing in it? And part of it, right, it's I, the first step is identifying like the market fit for your product and your offer, right? That, that's a big miss half the time, yeah. right? Or more than half the time. It's like, there's like a single digit percent of businesses that last for like more than a year, like two years or something. So more than not, there's a bad market fit, whether you're a restaurant in a bad location or the unneeded or online ventures like we're probably talking about here. So it's like, hey, does your offer solve a big enough problem? And then are you marketing that product and that problem um, and the solution for it in the right way to the right people? In a unique way as well, yeah. because if you look at like one of the ingredients that just took off over the last few years in affiliate marketing is like ashwagandha. Yeah. How many ashwagandha supplements are there now? Like there, there's tons, right? And if you market yourself the same way, because you haven't you haven't created a formula for your product that blends itself with other ingredients and stuff like that, <laughs> that makes your product unique from the rest of the market and gives you a clear angle to be able to solve a very specific problem for people, then you're just another ashwagandha product out there. And you're not even, you're probably not even gonna get a chance to compete at scale because your product isn't unique enough. Yeah, that's the... <laughs> How many VSL scripts do we see that look eerily similar <laughs> <laughs> to 10 other VSL scripts coming across our desk at the same time? This is virtually right. the same lead and the spokesperson looks almost identical to. Yeah, right. It's like, I think Ed's cranky corner, you know, when Ed Scow has been on the podcast talking about it, he's riffed on this a bit, but right. It's like this industry, I don't know if it, it's probably like this everywhere. I'm sure it, every industry deals with this, but it seems like there's almost a fear of innovation in this industry because everyone else just looks at what everyone else is doing and just does that, right? And then the, there's like very slow incremental innovation because someone rips off something else from someone else and then puts that in and it just kind of spreads. There's not like big leapfrogs that we typically see. Every now and then with like, gosh, it comes to, what comes to mind? It was the, it was like the mobile optimized VSL, right? That was like vertically on the lander on the phone, right? Yeah. The vertical playing video on the phone. That was like, whoa. <laughs> Game changing. Right? Yeah, you look at those ones yeah. that, that while they are rare, man, mm -hmm. do they have huge impact, right? So if you are able to create an innovative product or market it in an innovative way, like that is an incredible form of quickly yeah. scaled success that you can achieve. Yeah, so it's like, it's really, so it's identifying the market fit, identifying the economics in your offer, right? And kind of what does that look like? And then being able to market that and present that to an audience in such a way that allows you to actually gain customers and revenue in the first place. Yeah. So it's really, like the groundwork yeah. in order to try and get to the place where you can potentially achieve scale. Yes. Yep. So let's, let's hit on this a little bit more. Then I want to do it, dive into some of those like friction points of scale. But I'm just curious if you're doing like a funnel audit with somebody, right? If you're diving into like 
know, their initial offer, maybe some of their ads and things like that. Like what are some of the key metrics you're looking at through that funnel and where do you usually end up offering suggestions? Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to start at how does the offer convert? Is it converting well? What are the number of hops or clicks, whatever you want to call it relative to the number of sales? right? Is it converting at a good clip? What is a good clip? Well, for warmer traffic sources, we're probably talking about like emails and stuff like that. We're probably talking about a 1.75 to potentially up to like 4% conversion mm-hmm. rate that I see on a you know relatively frequent basis. And for truly cold traffic sources, like an affiliate that's buying ads, uh, on the low side, 0.75 to 0.9, on the higher side, up to 1.9 to 2% conversion rate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where it's like, some of the e-com listeners here might be going like, whoa, like my conversion rate's way higher than that. But the mistake I often see is that they're looking at like the last touch point conversion rate, like what ad closed that when really there was probably a bunch of branding and stuff that went into it before. And if you multiply, if you look at all the ads you're running and kind of like all the clicks you're generating and then the conversions, it's probably in that like 1% range, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe even less. So let's yeah. assume, let's assume somebody's conversion rate is yeah. doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. What would you look at after that? I, so I guess, I mean, I, I almost start, if they're running ads, I'll start with the ad. Like is the click through rate good on the ad? Is there worm to be done there? Cause right. Tweaking the ad headline can drastically in, in change the conversions through the whole funnel. Right. Cause like it might just be framing the initial offer differently and driving different type of traffic to your offer. So the ad, whether it's an email subject line an email you're running or swipes or things like that, like, is that, are those in a good spot? Cause that's probably the biggest lever you have in your funnel is the top, top line, email subject line, then body and, or add image video or headline and copy there. And what's initiating the click to your offer. That's the biggest lever you have, right? If you want to drive more traffic, you can spend the same exact amount of money <laughs> and just have a way better performing ad and you'll get a lot more traffic from that same budget. So that's a great way to kind of unlock stuff. There's just to keep split testing that past that, like you said, it's kind of the lander, um, the initial lander or the conversion rates good. What's happening there. Um, then I look at order form specifically, right? So that, you know, is that, is that congruent is the offer actually presented in a way on that lander that is compelling, right? Or is it just kind of like, and now here's the offer and it's almost like leaving the customer up to the side. Are you just telling them this is the best one you should buy. Like you could buy this one or this one, but this is the one you should buy and really driving that AOV up initially. That's what I'm really, I think there's a lot of room there for a lot of people when they look at the, how they're presenting that actual offer on the lander. Um, we did an episode with Nick Coates actually, I don't know if we've dropped it yet, where he kind of goes through some examples of like e-com hybrid landers and stuff like that. Um, we did a video recording with him too on it and it's right. How they're presenting the offer to someone is almost one of the biggest lifts they have on those like direct response, e-com or hybrid pages. And then from there, it's like the stats of the funnel. What's your initial cart value? What's your average order value? If the AOV is not a multiplier in some capacity, it might be a 1.2 multiplier, right? it's probably not a two X multiplier, but if the AOV is not a multiplier of your initial cart value, there's probably a problem there, right? Like you said, if it's like 20 ish percent, coming from your upsell funnel, that might be okay. If it's 30%, that might be a little better. 20 or 30 is kind of where we see scale happen, assuming your initial cart rate is high enough. Um, if it's 50%, right, that could be too high. And people are gonna go, what, like, what do you mean? Like my upsell is contributing too much. It probably means you're not charging enough in your upsell funnel. So I'll be looking at prices throughout the whole funnel. And can I be increasing prices tactically to increase the AOV without 
detracting too much from the conversion rate. Um, and then past that, it's uh, customer lifetime value, right? And if that is not a multiplier of average order value, there's a big problem. So I want to I want to dive in right to some some points that can break scale, but I'd also love to tap a little bit more into that order form element, right? Mm-hmm. Is just to give people some metrics here. If your order form isn't converting somewhere between 12 and 15% at minimum, you probably have a lot of, a lot of work you could do there. It, you can get your order form. We see a lot of order forms that convert up to 20 to 22% that can por- perform really well. So that can be a great lever for you. If you're seeing a lot of clicks to order form, but virtually no sales, then one, your order form design could need a lot of work. That might be it, but you also could be getting a lot of low quality clicks to your order form. Yeah. So then like you're talking about, go back to your offer. Are you do you have a buy now button above the fold before somebody's <laughs> really had a chance for you before you've been able to hook them, yeah. right? They've read your headline and then immediately they're ready to buy. It probably isn't going to work that way for you, right? So it's about- so if you've got a higher cost item. Exactly. Like, oh yeah, I want this. Whoa, right now they're not yeah. sold on it yet. Okay, I want this and then I click over, yeah. So try and right, take a holistic look at your data and figure out, okay, like what metric is not performing well? And if you're- in this example, right, if you are getting a lot of clicks to your order form but no sales, then it's probably a lot of low quality clicks. Try and present your offer, your actual buy now option for the product later on. And maybe that means making your reveal later on, like yeah. waiting until far later in your sales copy or your VSL before you reveal that. Yeah, I think testing where the buy button pops if it's a video sales letter or where you present the offer is one of the biggest levers you've got, right? Yeah. It's like where you're at. I've, I've seen media buyers get exclusive pages built from their sellers and they get exclusively on that page and all they do is test where the buy button pops. That's not all they do, right? But it's like, it's a major component of what they're doing. And they're getting conversion increases against the other media buyers just on where the buy button is getting presented. Yeah, yeah. You, and if you got a video, right, you could look at, uh, split testing, auto playing your video, going full screen yeah. on your video, making your video wider, like the yeah. um, the base version of your your video on your screen before anybody plays it, making that wider on the screen so it takes up more, or making it smaller, yeah, um, so that your headline's more prominent. So many elements that could be tested here. Yeah, just think about the psychology too of add to cart is a pretty passive thing. I added it to my cart. By now, yeah, <laughs> is much more action intention, right? Even little things like that. I've gosh, uh, I've seen learn more, which gets a lot of clicks. <laughs> it doesn't convert well <laughs> when you go to an order form with it. And I'd say we did an ed- episode with uh, Robbie Amaro on conversion rate optimization specifically, where he dropped some great little hacks in there. So that's another podcast episode we'll try to link to, um, where we go deep into that conversion rate optimization pieces. Yeah. So. Okay, we're getting past the zero point, right? We're getting some traction. We're kind of past the break even. We're getting some scale now. Gosh, yeah, this is where things are starting to get like exciting, but also hair on fire a little bit. So where does the hair catch on fire? What do we typically see there? Some things that come to mind, gosh, it's like, I, I think of like fulfillment being a big one, um, inventory being a big one, especially for a physical, not as much obviously for like a digital seller, but for physical goods, that can quickly go sideways. Yeah. <laughs> if you start getting a lot of traction, especially if you weren't expecting that traction. Also, we cracked it, and now this affiliate sent 
way more customers than we're expecting because the conversions are good. And now we're our runway for inventory just got condensed to like two weeks when we thought it was three months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like let's go through the lens of right. The solution yeah. is now the problem. Let's say you struck a deal with a fulfillment company um, or a manufacturer. Let's start there. Right. You struck a deal with a manufacturing company because the costs were great, but sourcing of the product is really challenging and has a very long long sales cycle or long life cycle to be able to make that work, right? Well, suddenly if you achieve a much higher level of scale and you run into that bottleneck that you're talking about where you thought this inventory would last for three months, well, it's crushing it for these affiliates and now it's gonna be out in two weeks. Does it take you another three months to be able to get more inventory? Because do you want to go to those affiliates and say, hey, hey stop. <laughs> yeah, stop making money, stop yeah. helping me out. Yeah. Absolutely not. So make sure that you have a scalable supplier for your brand. And even on the digital side. Well, so I would, I would put it back on the offer owner, like the CEO a little bit, right? Because like the, the f manufacturer fulfiller you might be using might be great, but you have not communicated with them Yeah. <laughs> that, hey, things are looking better. Like I, we don't we think we're going to need some faster lead time, whatever you want to call it, right? right? We're going to need some more inventory sooner than we anticipated, right? We, yeah, we did our initial 3,000 bottle order or whatever. Like, what's it gonna take to get another three, 12,000, whatever it might be in? Or if you're on demand, right? Maybe move to an on-demand model. Like, can you be holding our ingredients and be manufacturing on demand for us if we hit X volume, right? Those are conversations you need to be having with, it's like a channel partner, right? It's like, yeah, they're you're paying them for a service, but they can't predict the future. Yeah. <laughs> they can help you navigate if like ingredients are going out and that sort of thing. That can always be a, a bottlenecker. But um, what you can control is that active communication to them that, hey, sales are starting to increase. This is looking good. Sure, it might be a surprise to you, but ideally you're on top of that and be uh, proactively communicating with them. Yeah, because I guarantee you if you're, if you're doing really well, you're having a lot of orders go out the door, they're going to be incentivized to help you come up with a solution. So yes. absolutely be proactive. Yeah. Even touching back on the digital side, though, for most people, it's not a problem because they automate it. Mm -hmm. But for those that don't automate it, automate it. <laughs> like you absolutely have to automate Do the, the delivery yeah. of that. Yeah. Within a few minutes of the customer purchasing the product, deliver the product to them. Yeah. And if you are like waking up every day and you're going through and you're downloading a CSV report of the customers, you can get the email address, then you're sending them the product to the customer. Don't do that. That yeah. is not scalable, especially if you wake up one day and all of a sudden you've got 60 orders. Well, there goes your day. <laughs> there's your first hour of the day is completely taken yeah. up, let alone new sales that come through, right? Yeah, I would say too, right? Like it might be that the services you're using are not able to scale with you, right? You might be breaking them. They can't scale with you kind of thing. And that's where talking with your peers in the industry, figuring out like, hey, this is my lead time. Is that good for these ingredients? Getting expert feedback from other cons, you know, consultants, whatever it might be. Like that's your job as the owner to kind of figure out and tell that, okay, like we're gonna need a, either additional or new kind of services to solve for this fulfillment and inventory issue. Yeah, and yeah. if you are having those issues today, you're selling a physical product, it is being fulfilled by a fulfillment house and uh, or you're having supply chain issues, you're not able to get more of your product ordered mm -hmm. in a solid amount of time. A great partner to look at would be Ship Offers. Like yep. They are based in um, Colorado, so central United States. They've, they've got one, they're building in Tennessee as well. I think it's up. Oh. yeah. 
Oh, that's even better. Yeah, Nashville. So they've got faster cycle time to East Coast. Like Central, Eastern, Western kind of thing. They got Colorado and Nashville. They're shipping out of yeah. Ship Office is a great solution for people to look at because they can support scale so that you sh you are sure like that's not going to break. They can support that. Some other partners that you could also look at would be Print Bind Ship, Mel Prince, uh, formerly known as Mel Prince. Um, you could look <laughs> at uh, Jetpack. Um, could also be a great solution, right? There's so many different trustworthy fulfillment houses yeah, that can support yeah, you at scale. Com, they're, you know, they can do very high scale. Yeah. Um, no, there's, yeah, you can go to clickbank.com slash partners too, to get a lot of those links and kind of see uh, what our clients are using and liking. Um, yeah, that's significant. That's significant amount of revenue is going through those people you just recommended, right? Yeah. So that a lot of people can keep up with those. Yeah. What are some other things in your opinion that are kind of like breaking points of scale? What, what does scale break yeah. other than yeah, inventory? Certainly uh, scale can help speed up and also break cash flow, right? Especially if you are at break even on customer acquisition and you have a bunch of these new orders coming through and you don't have any money to be able to get a place, a new order um, for inventory to backfill or mm -hmm. get ahead of the orders that are coming, right? It can break cash flow um especially if you have yeah does it break cash flow because i mean in theory right if you're scaling there's more money in theory coming in right from the revenue you're generating with the scale is it i think i think i see what you mean though yeah it's like it's cash flow becomes to me like a big pinch point especially if you don't have lines of credit to tap right um Cause yeah, you might need like, oh gosh, in order for us to scale, we need 10,000 bottles and we only have enough cash to get three. <laughs> yeah. How do we afford this? Whatever it is, right? That, that, and that point cash was a big point. How do we don't you know, tap into a line of credit or something for or a loan that we can use to kind of keep this scale going so we don't just fold. Um, another key part that I see that can kind of almost inhibit scale to begin with is people don't know their cash flow numbers very accurately at all. Right, we were talking about like, what's your AOV, what's your LTV, right? I'd be willing to bet most of our listeners right now, if you ask them their LTV, they might think they know, or a lot, but they don't really know, and most don't know at all. Yeah. And the ones that are nodding their head like, yeah, I know it, they're crushing it right now. Yeah. <laughs> there are diamond clients out there, right? Um, LTV is incredibly important, and not just knowing LTV, but being able to tie back LTV to the acquisition point, right? Because that lets you scale the actual right thing. Because then you don't have, uh, gosh, Vinnie Fisher actually wrote the book False Profits, which is all about, like, you think, you look at the money in the bank account and go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's working. Not realizing that your scaled ant campaign is actually negative 10% after all the costs involved and the refunds and whatever it might be. And this ad campaign down here is actually 50% profitable. You just don't see it because it's all going to one big pool. And you think the scaled thing is contributing when really you should be investing more money into this campaign down here, or this affiliate or this, whatever traffic source it is. Yeah. Right. So being able to tie cash flow back to like profit loss statements that are tied to acquisition sources is extremely powerful. Um, and that's where I'd highly recommend people go work with a Vinnie Fisher if they aren't using like an in-house CFO or need additional support with a CFO and fully accountable. They're on our partners page too. Um, Caleb Williams comes to mind at Better Wealth. Better I think yeah. they're on our experts page. It's clickbank.com slash experts. You can find Caleb's stuff there. Um, there's people out there that can help look at that cash flow pieces and go, hey, this is on fire. <laughs> you need to fix this. Or 
do it now before it's on fire. And so you can actually reinvest the money the right way in your business. Yeah, I've had, I have some clients, I won't name the CRM, but I have some clients yeah. that operate off of figures provided by a CRM that help them figure out what their LTV is. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some, so they provided me the formula with how it calculates the LTV and it definitely is not calculating the LTV in the correct way, which means they've been, they operate their business off of inaccurate assumptions. They have this idea of this is how much money the average customer is worth to us. But some of those formulas that are off for them really impact their overhead. So they are going into thinking <laughs> oh, no. we can afford to pay a lot more to acquire a customer than we can. Well, in reality, your shipping and your cost of goods are being miscalculated and provided you inaccurately, oh, geez, which yeah. means your margin is not as healthy as you think it is to begin with. Um, so it's really just about making sure that you actually have the full picture. What is, what are all the, the costs that I need to consider that should be calculated into my LTV? And that's of course where solutions like you're talking about with fully accountable and better wealth can help you do that if you don't already know how to do that today. And, uh, there's also, um, software out there like LTV numbers that can help you, yeah. can help integrate within your sales process. Yeah, to, that's Tyler Ryan, right? Yeah. Yeah. LTV numbers.com. And if you go to clickbank.com slash integrations, we've got a link over there to them and they've got a great walkthrough of how to integrate that into ClickBank. Um, Cause yeah, gosh, half the time people don't count like the third party revenue they generate from those customers as LTV numbers. Yeah. It's like, it's like only, only our products count towards LTV. It's like this other revenue just is there. <laughs> it's like, no, like that's found money. Yeah. But it's like, this thing is like, if this affiliate is promoting you and the customers you, if those customers and on average generate X percent more, right. in LTV than this other affiliate, do you think maybe you want to reward that first affiliate a bit more and get them to send you even more customers? Right. Probably. Right. Yeah. So those let you make very actionable decisions and unlock more scale while making sure you don't run into those issues of going, oh, whoops, <laughs> we've been factoring our cogs as X when it was Y, and we're actually underwater, <laughs> even though the money in and out of the bank account looks okay, right? Yeah. So those, I think those are all elements that sometimes are a little bit harder to see. They aren't necessarily involved in the day-to-day, um, but what is a key point that can break scale uh, yeah. that you know might be next to you? Well, so, some of the first things I see break scale, especially with like a slow printer company is customer service, right? And this is kind of going into customer service is the thing that breaks that is like on fire. And that's like the immediate thing to point to. But the bigger thing that's breaking there is like the operations of the business, right? Which when you're a solo printer, you are the operations, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, you're on fire all the time. Um, your SOP is your brain. But even for a smaller company, let's say it's like two, three or four people and they're like, yeah, we've got marketing, we got email, we got all the things working. Now customers are coming in. It's like, who's handling these support tickets? Uh, <laughs> we kind of forgot to think about that. That's one of the first things I see start to break. Um, even if you've got customers who are covered, scale just adds, that's one thing that you just need more like overhead and people to help solve for. Whether it's contract basis, whether it's bringing in more customer service, but that's where the operations or business need to be tight. So you actually have leads coming in for employees that you can hire quickly and get on the ground quickly. You have operate uh, SOPs that you can plug in, that they can plug into and get trained quickly, right? Um, or you've got contract help that's doing that for you or a mix of the two in that department. Yeah. I, I also see oftentimes like somebody wants to, somebody's contracting their web development mm-hmm. out, right? They have these changes that they want to make. Well, that contracted web developer is somebody that, uh, 
already has, you know, 18 other clients and their week they're is a booked out. too. Yeah, yeah exactly. So <laughs> yeah. they want to make all these changes. They're like, yeah, we, you know, we need to get another test out. Um, and we, you know, we can't do it until we get these web development changes. Well, maybe that's a process you need to bring in house or you need to be again, just like, Hey, you're talking about being active and communicating and understanding what's the bandwidth of your contracted web developer, how quickly can get, they get changes spun out after they get you transacting, right? So once you are achieving scale, if you need to change something, adopt something, adapt something, whatever, um, how quickly can they do that for you? Yes. Yeah. Then what comes to mind there too is like salespeople, right? Like salespeople can be a great revenue to keep that scale going. Um, they're revenue generating employees, right? And then in our world, that might be an affiliate manager, right? So it might be getting an affiliate manager or two in if you're kind of getting big and that they are able to keep the wheels on the ground, so to speak, and can make sure everything's moving and that the affiliates have what they need, that more affiliates are coming in. Cause if you're scaling an affiliate offer that we're probably talking about, you're probably not just scaling customers. You're getting more eyeballs from other affiliates who also want to start sending more traffic. So it starts to compound very quickly. So you've got the customer piece you've got to be going forward. Then you need the affiliate piece where you're going, okay, how do I handle this influx of new affiliates coming on board? And how do I handle that kind of level of service? Right. So it's like that might be a key role that you need to hire for quickly or be able to add additional resources behind. Maybe it's a VA for your affiliate manager. Right. What can you do? So they're still doing revenue generating assets and tasks versus getting slogged with like all kinds of questions and uh, administrative work. Yeah, because to touch on that, right, what you don't want your affiliate manager doing are those administrative tasks. What you want them to be doing. Rarely does the conversation go and affiliate reaches out and says, hey, I want to promote your offer. And that affiliate turns out to drive hundreds of sales, right? Typically you're going to, you're going to have somebody that goes and meets the affiliates where they are and begins to build a relationship. Their follow-up game is on point. Your affiliate manager's follow-up game is on point. They are figuring out, all right, what are the assets that you need in order to promote? What are the metrics that you need to understand in order to promote? Those aren't administrative tasks. Those are sales closing tasks in order to try and win that business. Um, so if you are doing, you have affiliate management that's being done today. Is it the right type of affiliate management or is it more of administrative? I'm giving affiliates what they need rather than active recruitment and closing of the affiliates as you meet them. So that itself, if you don't, if you don't have, let alone, um, you could achieve a lot more scale, right? Yeah. But you also probably can significantly improve your internal processes to support affiliates better. Yeah, the administrative task needs to get done, right? It's not unimportant work. It's just it might be $10 an hour, $20 an hour work versus $100 to $1,000 an hour work, right? So it's like assign those roles and those tasks appropriately to whether systems are getting them done, processes are getting them, or people are getting them done in the right kind of manner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else there? It's like a kind of like part of operations to me is kind of like the almost the services you're using and the tech you're using. That's, I think that's what Jason was really talking about when I brought Jason Myers at the Platinum Summit thing, right? Is like he was really talking about like the systems you have in place, like what used to be a solution is now the problem. It's like, hey, we moved to the CRM. It's great. It solves all our problems. Then a year later, you're going, ah, <laughs> <laughs> like we need something else. We've grown past this kind of thing, right? That's constant in business. Like you've come up with a solution for this thing. It works great. It's awesome. It's hunky-dory. And now it's, you've scaled past it and it's kind of folding. Where does that... What are some of the, oh, sorry. I want to go back to the affiliate management piece. Yeah. How do you recommend East Fifth Avenue? Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. If you're running into any friction points with the affiliate management, whether it's people that you need to hire for, whether it's training for those people, whether it's just meeting more affiliates. Um, we've 
we just re-inked our partnership with them so we've got some good uh kind of intros we can do over there kind of little swag kind of things over there we can do for you um but amber spears and Linda Rodinsky, you know if you need help recruiting you need help training you need help just getting more affiliates Sorry, I dropped my pen. <laughs> um, no, excellent team over there to work. They've with. also got a community too of affiliate managers that all yeah. hop on like this. Uh, is it a biweekly call? I think that they do. Yeah, traffic every drive. other week call. I yeah. don't know if biweekly. That's biweekly. Yeah, biweekly to me is like it, it could happen every week, twice, right? That'd it's be happening. twice weekly. Well, yeah, that's what we have to <laughs> signify, though. Bi-weekly, some people are like, oh, yeah, it's happening twice a week. Other people, it's happening every other week. Other other times, it can swing both ways. It's biweekly. Yeah. I like the complicated nature of that <laughs> thought process. Um, yeah. But yeah, twice. I'm, I'm going to go to my employers now and say, I need to be paid bi-weekly, and that means twice per week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so yeah, every other week they're hopping on calls to kind of network. And, yeah, it could be yeah. great access to a community of other affiliate managers. It could be a, a source for you to go acquire new affiliates, but it's also going to be a support system for your own affiliate manager or yourself to be able to learn affiliate management in an environment that sets them up for success. A place like East Fifth Avenue is a amazing agency to be able to provide that service. Yeah. Sorry, okay, back to the tech solution services, SaaS stuff. Where, where do you see that to kind of start to break down for people when yeah. you're talking scale? Most, most recent one that I had, right, and this is, uh, ties back into LTV a little bit, right, but monetizing the customer. Sometimes people get set up with an ESP that is not third-party offer friendly, right? They're not affiliate friendly, which can impact their ability to monetize the or customer. Or super vague terms where it's like, I think they're friendly, but they also aren't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there has been this history of email well, service yeah. providers like down downgrading performance mm -hmm. when they don't like what you're doing. So you want to make sure that you're set up with a reputable, trustworthy ESP. It's so that weird. Supports Half the time their, their terms of service will say something like, we don't like affiliate affiliates affiliate <laughs> marketing is okay and you're like i don't understand <laughs> like i don't there's clearly some like capital investment occurring yeah. with this this yeah. company and they're going through a transition kind of thing well it's, it's, it's i mean a lot of the big esps that you see like uh advertising like and podcasts are this way right like a lot of the it's like yeah affiliate marketing like affiliates are not okay Affiliate marketing is okay. And you're like, I don't understand the difference. Like yeah. what you're, it seems like it's intentionally vague so they can just shut down what they don't like when they see it kind of thing. So yeah. An another bottleneck is when you're trying to improve your, the performance of your offer, right? If you are built off of like a, a web, pa um, a page builder, mm -hmm. right? A, a click funnels, a convertry, a lead pages, that type of thing. And you are trying to improve the performance of your offer. It might make sense to move over to custom HTML. That can be a, where yeah. it, initially you went with the page builder because you don't have dev experience. It yeah. was just you, you were doing everything yourself. Cool. Could be a great solution for you. But eventually when you want to achieve a certain level of scale, that performance of the page builder could actually be impacting you from being able to scale up from there even. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's like the, it could be a friction point, but it could just be additional unlock, right? If it's, especially yeah. if you're scaling, right? You might be bogging down your hosting, right? So hosting might need to be upgraded pretty quickly, kind of things. Make sure that you're on a dedicated IP and like things are actually able to load quickly. That you've got the raw HTML pages set up, right? You know, you can. There's some people on our experts page that can help do that. Uh, wow, I'm blinking the funnel builder name. Um, CB Split. 
Oh right? yeah. Right. Yeah. Split's a great option too. I think it can import like ClickFunnels, for example, and it loads as HTML. So if you're building in one and want to load it into the CB split and then use them for hosting, they've actually got a really good package deal. If you go to clickbank.com slash integrations, they're listed there. Um, but there's a lot of solutions for that kind of like tech infrastructure piece that are important to solve for. And question asked would be like, do you have backup? Like if hosting goes down, is there an easy button to push that spins up or does it automatically happen? So it spins back up because the last thing you want is that to happen at 10 PM when you're going to bed and affiliates are freaking out overnight and you wake up and revenue has been down for 12 hours, right? <laughs> so can you have backups in place for all these things? And are you thinking playing of the defensive side of your business, not just offense? And another point on that defensive related to domains is keep a separate domain for if, let's say you're driving ads yourself, you've got all yeah. these other mm -hmm. customer acquisition channels outside of affiliates. Well, keep those domains separate from your affiliate domains, right? You want to make sure that yeah, activity yeah. on both sides doesn't impact the other. It can be easy to keep yeah, the so same if, domain. So you mean affiliates are driving traffic to buymystuff.com and you're sending traffic as yourself in your own internal media buying to mystuff.com. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah, keep yeah. those domains separate because you, you don't want um, affiliate activity to be impacting your your own domain activity, right? That sure. could be a, an, an example of, and that's really, really low risk. There's ways to mitigate that, yeah. right? But it's still exists. And that could be a great way for, um, for you to protect play defense and try and protect your other customer acquisition channels from being impacted, yeah. which would impact their scalability. Not some new kind of just, uh, it's kind of tied to cash flow, but mids and processing, yeah. right? Like you might've got set up on something really easy, like Stripe. Um, but if you're selling something high ticket, if you're selling something, a lot of volatility, which affiliates can be a lot of, you know, up and down kind of sales cycles, PayPal is another example of this, right? Those processors don't always like that kind of volatile volume and might go look at you and go, well, we don't like this. We're going to hold a lot of reserves. We're going to stop your processing, right? So making sure you're on something like a ClickBank, which has unlimited processing that you can just scale with, or you've got lots of mids backed up that you can be rotating through. So you're not hitting caps on your merchant processing. That's a something people don't realize they need until they need it. And then they're scrambling. Yeah. <laughs> if you're dealing with a, a merchant processor that has a processing cap and you were hitting that, well, honestly, any months of the year, if you're yeah. ever hitting that, it's time to scale up. But if yeah. you were hitting that more frequently than not, that is when a like ClickBank's uncapped processing, you can, you can we have been able to support immense scale yeah. with clients on a single day basis. We've never run into any processing cap issues and we never will. Yeah. Knock on wood. No, Knock on wood. <laughs> no need think, here. We're confident. We're so, yeah, <laughs> I'd be very surprised if we had anything like that. No, we're good to go there. Um, but that's all very to, not to toot our own horn a bit too much here, but it's our podcast. We'll do what we want. Um, your affiliate <laughs> management program, like where that's hosted, right? Like, is that able to scale with you or is that causing a bunch of issues with manual processes and payouts and all that kind of stuff? Or can you automate a lot of that with actual where your program is hosted? And that's something you almost need to do before you scale an affiliate program because moving affiliates from one program to another can be clunky because they don't, they're lazy and they don't want to go update a bunch of links. Right. Um, but, if you start that to begin with and go, okay, we want to be able to grow this to be multiple six, seven, eight, nine figure revenue channel for us. What supports that? That helps you get on the right path and going, well, our CRM has an affiliate tracking built in, but then it really only scales for like a handful of affiliates and then your team's on fire trying to handle everything in there manually. So yeah. yeah. Is there anything else that comes to mind that kind of impacts scale and like the tech operation? kind of side of things? Uh, cursory 
one, right? But if you have a membership site that doesn't support how you want to expand your offer, right? Um, that can be a linchpin as well. It takes a lot of work to be able to move yourself from one yeah. membership site to another, right? Especially if you've baked in everything you've ever done with one specific membership site. Um, yeah, that's a lot of work, yeah. Yeah, and if you have a course or something like that, then looking at a solution like Thinkific or uh, Teachable. Kajabi, yeah. Yeah, some. which I think are also clickbank.com forward slash integrations. If you're trying to learn more about yeah. the, those resources, um, you can find some links on, on that page, but right. Just having, having the right solutions that are going to help you service your product the way that you, you want to, it's mm -hmm. really the general takeaway there. Yeah. Now it's a lot of it boils down to like almost before you start selling, right? You know, it's almost doing the journaling on this and like, does this, well, what do I envision this to be at scale? Does these solutions going for support that? Budget constraints might force you to go with something that's more budget friendly to start, but you might just know that, okay, when we hit X, we're going to move to Y, right? Yeah. Because that's going to help us get to Z kind of thing. So that you have that planned out and you're not just like planning on the fly. Right? Yeah. Be proactive. That way yeah. you don't have scale break and then you decide that you need to move, right? You're trying to be proactive about getting ahead of scale breaking when you've identified which lever is going to impact that. Yes. Which I think we can wrap this up with, I think that leads into like a nice wrap up here because in my opinion, the biggest instigator of big scale and the biggest friction point of scale that stops scale is you, right? The CEO, the founder, the solopreneur, whoever's listening to this right now, like you work in, in control and it's your job to be in control of everything we've talked about here, right? That doesn't mean, in my opinion, that you might be the one doing all these things, but you're hiring the people to do those things for you, right? And those things are getting taken care of. So I think that's where we see, that's where I see a lot of businesses stall. It's not the business that's stalling. It's the founder that's kind of getting plateaued and they aren't able to backfill behind them or they don't have a desire to, or they kind of get overwhelmed. There's a lot of reasons why it might happen. They kind of get stuck in a level they're at and the business gets stuck there too. Yeah, or they don't play to their strengths and they don't hire to mm -hmm. accommodate for their weaknesses. Yeah. Look at how many marketers out there are really great at creativity yeah. and ideating. They are, they know exactly how their business is gonna evolve. They don't have the skill set to actually make that happen, right? They don't have the execution, the operations mindset in order to be able to make that work. So f for some people, when you're evaluating your business, right, take your ego out of it. And when you're trying to figure out, am I the linchpin for it? Can you delegate those tasks? Do you need to onboard more? Um, do you simply need to build out your team better like there could be so many different ways it's it's not necessarily that your business cannot achieve scale with you in your current capacity but could it achieve a higher level of scale with somebody else in that capacity right because you're still winning you're still winning at yeah. that point no it's i think the i think people die in the hill of the ceo quite a bit right it's like i'm the ceo i'm the founder i have to do this right and it's like you don't have to you can like ascend a president of the company or whatever it is. You could be the chief copywriter, chief yeah. marketer, CMO, whatever it is, right? You can hand off the CEO, the COO roles, right? To different kinds of people that are much better at that um, and allow a lot more skill to happen from there. I'd highly recommend looking at things like Amber Spears' Four Room Mastermind. Perry's got a great one. I've heard about a Driven. This is new one. I think there's all these like kind of different masterminds out there that focus more on less of like the marketing hack stuff some are more marketing hack stuff but i think if you're struggling with like i don't know how i don't know what i need to do and i'm kind of stuck in my own way 
that's when it's probably more reflective on you, the person, and I need to kind of balance my life, right? Yeah. And th- yeah. And that's where things like the masterminds, I think I'm really valuable. Because now you're masterminding with other CEOs and entrepreneurs that are in the same shoes as you, right? And they can help go, okay, I was in your shoes two years ago. This is how I got out of it. And you're probably going to hear more often than not, it's delegating, replacing yourself. It's getting out of your own way. And it's kind of letting things happen. If you can't take a step away from your business for a month or two weeks and without things falling apart or sales slowing down, that's a good sign that you're the problem, right? So, yeah. so much of this content is based on offer owners, right? Uh, people that own the product, own the brand, what have you. But let's also just tie in affiliates, for example. hundred oh, percent, yeah. We've worked with that. so many agencies where there are a few different, it's like three, four, five people that work together. And they work together because they have skill sets that are complementary to each other, right? You have this creative ideator, they love video editing, they put together all of these ads, they come up with new angles, amazing. And they partner with somebody that is an executor to the nth degree, somebody that is an achiever that has, you know, their sight set on, I'm gonna put the work in, take that vision, make it a reality. That's an amazing potential partnership. Expand further, you get somebody that's creative on the selling side, right? Somebody that can create compelling copy. Mm-hmm. They can up your game on pre-landers and uh, help you, like they, they're going to drive so much more business for you because of the value that they provide that it completely offsets any like loss in how much ownership of that business that you might have, right? By bringing in another partner. That kind of stuff can be huge levers for you to be able to pull on the affiliate side uh, with the amount of agencies we've seen that have success uh, doing that is crazy. Yeah, and on, oh, on the flip side too, there's a lot of affiliates that get stuck being the solopreneur affiliate who have to be checking their Facebook ads when they're on vacation and then it's running, right? And they almost feel like they don't have the bandwidth to hire and replace themselves because they're on this hamster wheel. And if they aren't doing it, it's gonna fall apart. Right. Very, I gosh, see that constantly kind of thing. But so take, taking that step backwards, like, okay, what does it take to actually get this person in? It might be hiring a consultant or someone to do it for you or with you. So you can actually keep doing what you think you need to do and start to kind of hand that off. But it's powerful. I would say I'd wrap this up too. It's like the scale shouldn't be the end goal, right? Like you don't have to keep scaling, right? If you have a lifestyle business, that's kind of paying your bills and giving you enough to, you know, not retire, I'm gonna do whatever you want to do. Great. Right, if I can just hum along without you, that's awesome. Um, but there is that old adage, if you're not growing, you're losing kind of thing. So it's striking that balance of how involved you wanna be in your business and how big do you wanna make it versus what do you want in your lifestyle and where is that perfect kind of balance and how do you w- keep working towards that perfect balance? You'll probably never quite get it, right? But how do you kind of keep working towards that and what's that goal and how do you um, backfill behind you? How do you step in where you need to? How do you do what you're great at? And how do you let yourself be and show up with your family and show up with your friends and show up with your hobbies while letting the business not consume your whole life? I think this is a really great way to look at it. Yeah, it's uh, it's challenging to do. A lot of I think if you look at a lot of our clients, they're, a lot of people have their business is their life, right? This is the thing I've made. They're passionate about it. It's awesome. If that went away, they would. I've had people tell me this. I, I don't know what I would do. Yeah. Right. It's like, <laughs> it's like professional athletes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They retire from pay- playing that sport. That was all they ever knew. That was the one way they yeah. knew how to make money. It's a huge dopamine driver. Right. They're just yeah. like, okay, like now what? It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's building in that structure around you to where the business isn't fulfilling everything for you. Right. And you're not the hero in your business, right? The business is operating and you're controlling it. Um, 
as best, you know, not as best you can intentionally and as you need to and want to, not the other way around. Because if you don't, your business is potentially overextended, right? Yeah. And it's just like you're talking you. about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Um, Again, okay, we've referenced a lot of people on this. If you go to clickbank.com slash partners, clickbank.com slash integrations, or clickbank.com slash experts, you'll find a lot of the people we referenced on here. If there's people you can't find, hit Kyle or I up, and we'll get you connected with those people. We're all about the right people at the right time. So we love to connect people. It makes us look like rock stars. So let us be a rock star for you. Um, anything you want to wrap up with this, Kyle? Um, Secrets to scale? A, a, a scale joke. Um, oh boy! The uh, <laughs> so it's not really a joke, right? But for some context, mm -hmm. uh, the diameter of Australia is actually greater than the diameter of the moon. So just for an idea of scale of the really? moon, really? Yeah. Wait, what do you say? Diameter? Do you mean like the east to west? Oh, right. What did you think? I thought <laughs> <laughs> they meant like the coastline, <laughs> like like the like the miles of the coastline, which. That would be true too. That would be much larger, probably. Yeah, that'd be more shocking though, because it's not, not the surface round. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh. Anyway, fun fact. That probably means is Pluto bigger than the Moon? I think it's smaller than the Moon, isn't it? Mm, I would guess smaller. So Australia is bigger than Pluto because it's a dwarf planet. Yeah. Huh. What a detour. We'll lead you all of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Happy scaling, so everybody. Sorry, Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, wherever you're listening to this. Drop us some more planet facts if you wouldn't mind. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Happy scaling. Kyle, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much.